Over a month or so ago, we began to read and pray and teach through the Gospel of John. And over this past month or so, we've seen that John's Gospel is an invitation. It's God's personal invitation to each one of us to enter into a real friendship with Jesus. And Jesus is in the most intimate relationship with the Father. In fact, in John's Gospel, Jesus says he abides, he dwells, his home is in the Father. And the Father is in him. So when we step into a relationship with Jesus, we're stepping into the love of the Father for the Son. We're stepping into a dynamic environment of life-giving love. And this gospel is an invitation for each one of us to do that. And each one of us is invited to accept that invitation personally. Your response to Jesus has to be individual to be real. This is what we see over and over in John's gospel. John's gospel has accounts of more extended conversations that Jesus has with individuals than any other of the gospels. Over and over, John is making the point, not only is Jesus cosmic, not only is he about the healing of all things, but he's also intensely personal. And we've seen over the last few weeks that the way each one of us is to respond to Jesus' invitation into friendship with himself is by turning our lives toward him and entrusting ourselves to him. To turn our attention and our life toward him. And then as we do this, as we open our hearts to a friendship with Jesus, as we begin to do this in our daily activities, as we learn how to think about Jesus and open ourselves up to him in the dailiness of our lives and in the dark places of our lives, little by little, we discover who Jesus is. This is the only way to know who Jesus is. You can't learn who Jesus is at an arm's length, studying him like some scientist in a lab, staring at a fish dead on the table in front of him. You can only learn who Jesus is the way I can only learn who any one of you are by entering into relationship with you. Aren't you insulted when people speak of you as if they know you when they don't? Don't you know when people try to do that, they get it wrong every time? Don't you resist that? Jesus is like that himself. Christianity is a self-authenticating faith. You can only really know it from the inside out. And the gospel of John is that invitation. Turn your life toward him. Stop treating him like an object. Stop assuming that you're the sovereign subject. But instead, enter into a relationship. Open your heart and as you do, you discover little by little who he actually is. And you discover that he is the source of all the light and life and goodness and beauty that exists in this entire creation. And this morning, 
as we continue to follow Jesus through the Gospel of John, as we continue to learn little by little who Jesus is, this morning we listen to the first nine verses of chapter 5. And we see Jesus for the second time in the city of Jerusalem. The first time he came to the city, does anybody remember where he went? He made a beeline for a particular place on his first trip to the city. Does anybody know? This is a real question. You can actually say something out loud. It's not one of those preacher questions. So does any, where did he go? To the temple, but a particular place in the temple. We'll remember that in a moment. The first time he came to the city, he went straight for the temple. And this time when he comes to the city, he goes straight for the local insane asylum. That's what this was. This was the asylum. Look at John chapter 5, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, the stinky gate, the place nobody's going to go through unless their feet are already covered in sheep dung. Over on that part of the city. Over there in that, who wants to build a house next to the sheep gate? Really? I mean, can you imagine property values there? We've cloistered. We've, we've set up housing. We call it the projects. That's where the asylum is. Five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Can you see them lying there? They are dirty, and they are ugly, and they stink. They are shunned. And despised. In the culture of that time, children born with a handicap were viewed by the entire culture as a punishment from God. They or their parents have sinned, and the disability is a sign of evil. So when we read in John chapter 5, verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years of his life, when he looked at people, what they saw was a sign of evil. So, of course, you put them by the sheep gate. Who wants that sign in the midst of the community? We can just imagine that his paralysis is surely not only physical. Not only is he a person who is a paraplegic physically, but what about his own heart? What would this do to your heart? Did any of you grow up in a home? Did any of you grow up in a place where you were seen as a sign of wrongness, an imposition? Did any of you, have any of you experienced life where you can never just quite seem to say the right thing and it started from the moment you were born? As far back as you can remember, you've stuck your foot in your mouth. You have created an environment of your own rejection. Can you see him lying there? I wonder where his parents are. What kind of parent would abandon this child? Parents who exist in a society that the framework of that society, the plausibility structure of that society says this child is a sign of brokenness. 
So in other words, it's not what kind of parent, it's what kind of society produces the kind of parents that abandon this child. They're missing. And I wonder what they looked at him like. I wonder what they saw when they looked at him when he was a child. And what did he see when he looked in the eyes of his parents? What does it do to a person when they begin to think that they are not loved because they're not lovable? When that move happens, what does it do to a person? That there is something evil and ugly inside of them that cannot and should not be loved. We know what it does to a person. It leads to overwhelming despair. Here is a man who is paralyzed, imprisoned in a body that is broken and twisted, but he is also imprisoned in loneliness and anguish. He has been put aside. He is unwanted. And that's where Jesus goes. The last time he was in town, the last time he came to the city, he went to the part of the temple complex where the poor were being systematically crushed. And this time, when Jesus comes to the city, he goes to the local asylum where the poor are being ignored. Makes a beeline for it. And this focus that Jesus has on the weak, the vulnerable, the put aside, this relentless return to the rejected, if you read the Gospels, you can't escape it. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, we are told to behold the Lamb. Look at Him. Watch Him. Turn the attention of your life to the Lamb. As you read the book of Gospel, watch the lamb, see him, behold him. And when you do so, when you behold the lamb in the gospel of John, you notice that he is driven by a concern, a, a, a passion, and, and a kind of an overwhelming commitment to the useless people. Did you know? That one-fifth of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one-fifth of the content of all four Gospels, 20% is Jesus engaged with the poor, the vulnerable, the refugee, the immigrant, the undocumented citizen, the rejected, the, re the, re the, the put-aside people. 20%. One-fifth of all the materials of the Gospel is this in one form or fashion. Jesus' direct engagement with the poor. Now, I'm using poor in a thick way here, just so you know. When we worked through the Gospel of Luke a couple of years ago, when we worked through the book of Acts last year, in, in the Gospels, especially in Luke's Gospel, poor is a term for anybody whose social identity means they cannot secure justice for themselves. It's far more than economic poverty. Anybody whose social identity leaves them disempowered when it comes to securing fairness for themselves. We have to rediscover that definition today in America if we're going to read the gospel like Christians and not like pagans. This is hard for our society. Our society favors the clever, the strong, the productive, the beautiful. Every now and again, our society bends down to help the weak and the poor. But, but our society, does it really believe that these people are fully human? That they are made in the image of the creator? 
Our society doesn't really believe that they have something to contribute. Our productive culture sees no meaning to their lives. And as we behold Jesus here in the asylum, we are seeing the deep desire of God to heal the loneliness that shrieks despair as the powers of death claw this man into a grave of isolation. Nobody wanted to see this man, but Jesus did. He wanted to see him. He made a beeline for this place. Behold the Lamb of God making a beeline to the rejected. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees this man as unique and important, loved by the Creator. Nobody loves him, but Jesus loves him and he heals him. The work of God is life. And he calls forth life. This is how Jesus comes to each one of us. He loves us. And he invites us to himself. And he knows, he knows that junk that you've hid from everybody else. He knows that shame and failure that you've returned to again and again like a dog to his vomit. He knows that about you. He knows that about me. And he invites me. And he loves me. And he loves you. And when we entrust ourselves to him, when we open our hearts and our lives to friendship with him, we discover that we too can be truly alive. By entering into the love of the Father and the Son. And then what? Well, we discover that he is calling us to then take up our maps and follow him as he goes toward the most rejected of people. He loves us and heals us and calls us to follow him into this work of healing. One-fifth of the Gospels, one-fifth of the material in the biographies of Jesus is concentrated on Jesus with the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the rejected, the despised. And it's not just the Gospels. Did you hear our Old Testament reading? Did you hear our passage from Isaiah chapter 58? God judged Israel for failing to share their bread with the hungry. For failing to bring the homeless into their homes, it says. For failing to clothe the naked and failing to pour themselves out for the afflicted. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, we're told that Christians are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Where does He go in John's gospel? Over and over to the weak. To the vulnerable. Church of the Incarnation. Who in our society. Does not have the social status necessary. To secure their own justice. Who in our society when they get pulled over. Is more and less likely. 
to get a ticket and be hauled off to jail. The giant elephant in the room right now are refugees and black people. We ended slavery and then the 13th Amendment institutionalized the mass incarceration of the African-American community in America. It, it shatters all reasonable numbers. By and large, this is a middle-class white room. We don't live in this reality. Who lives in this reality in America? Where is the asylum? Who do we not see? Who have we cloistered away? The Muslim, the Syrian refugee, the lazy, the poor, the incarcerated. Church of the Incarnation, may it be said of us that we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now how? How do we do this? How do we actually go into the asylums of this particular community? How can we follow the Lamb in Harrisonburg? Where is he right now? Where are the asylums in Harrisonburg? Our faith is useless if all we do is wish them well. So says James. If all we can do is hope and cry and say, I hope it works out, go be warm and well fed. We have to find concrete, practical ways to touch the untouchable, to accept the rejected, to love the unloved. We must actually do this or our faith is useless. In James's words, or in Isaiah's words, the judge will judge us. So how? How do we do this? There are lots of ways. We could think about this. You see what I'm trying to get us to do? What we have to do with Scripture is we have to look at the vision it casts and then stand in the light of that vision looking at our particular city, our particular community. And we have to say, what light is this shining? What is this showing us about living out our lives in this particular place? How do we stand in the vision cast by John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, and 20% of the Gospels? And all over the pages of the Old Testament. How do we do this? Lots of ways to think about it. I've found a very helpful way to think about it. As I've reflected on how scripture envisions us moving out into the asylums of our world. That it seems to me scripture gives three primary ways that we as human beings engage the broken, lonely places of our world. We do this as neighbors as workers, and as citizens. In Scripture, humans move out of the church. What we're doing here this morning, adoring the Lamb, and then at the end we're commissioned to go out into the world, and we go out into the world in three primary ways, as neighbors, as workers, and as citizens. First, we follow the Lamb into the lonely places of our communities by being good neighbors. Right, right there in the... The, the, Jesus' summary of the law. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor. Neighbor 
the, the, your life as a neighbor is fundamental to your life in Christ and your life in this world. And at the heart of being a good neighbor in Scripture is the practice of hospitality. The church in America has to reprioritize hospitality as the public side of love. Because when we accept Jesus' invitation into his love, the love that he has for the Father and the Father has for him, when we open our lives to that love, it's generous love pouring into our life. It is not the romantic love of two individuals on the day of their wedding gazing into the eyes of each other. It is an outward-focused love. The love that we experience in Christ is a communal love. It is not just for ourselves. And as we grow in that love, it has to overflow. The work of the church in this world is the work not of excluding our neighbors. But it is the work of embracing our neighbors through concrete practices of hospitality. Think about how powerful this is in the world that we are right now living in. Think about your open door. Think about your warm welcome. Think about the holiness of pulling out that extra chair, of setting out that extra plate, of filling that glass one more time, of going and finding those linens and putting them on the bed. That is holy work. That is holy. That is the work of hospitality. And I cannot imagine a more powerful protest against the nativistic, tribalistic impulses of our own country right now. Welcoming those who are different than we are into our households. And expressing love to them. And so we have to give ourselves to the work of hospitality. Just in case it's not clear enough. The invalids by the sheep gate. They are the Muslims in America today. They are the poor. They are the incarcerated. They are the mentally ill. They are anybody who doesn't have the social status to secure justice for themselves. They are the people that we are scared of and don't want to look at. And so we give ourselves to this work of hospitality because it is only as we do this that we can gather up the love that is extended to us by Jesus and is cultivated in us and then extend it to our neighbors. Behold the Lamb of God in John chapter 9 and then follow him into Harrisonburg. And you see that the public side of a generous love is hospitality extended to the unwanted, the put aside, the imprisoned. So we follow the lamb into the broken places of our city. First of all, as neighbors. And second of all, as workers. God calls every human being to work. He gives us, every one of us, every man and woman and child, he gives us gifts. 
And the call is to understand those gifts and then to exercise them in work. The purpose of work is to bring the goodness out of this world, the goodness out of the earth, the goodness out of society, and to bless our neighbors with it. The purpose of work is to cultivate orchards and create cities where people can flourish. Now, we live in a culture that places a massive emphasis on work, and this is a complicated thing. It's partly owing to, owing to our Judeo-Christian heritage. It's partly owing to lots of factors. But unfortunately, our society is deeply confused about both the nature and the goal of human work. And because of this, one of the most important tasks that we face when we really want to move out of the institutional church in our lives, to our neighbors, to our work, one of the most important things we have got to do is to reimagine the purpose of work. We have to ask ourselves, what is work for? And what does it mean to work as an agent of the kingdom, as a child of the king, as a royal priest? What does it mean to work as a Christian? And as we follow the lamb, we follow him into our jobs, and we must come to understand how our work, our labor, our labor is a fundamental part of our life in God. Just like our neighborliness is a fundamental dimension and aspect of our life in God, our work is a second fundamental aspect of life in Christ. And we have to drill down into that. We have to follow the Lamb to our particular jobs. Look at it this way. Following Jesus into the asylum is not necessarily adding something to your life. It may be, for some of you, about relearning how to live the life you already have. Especially... When it comes to your job. And at the heart of this is to remember, always remember, that the goal of work is love. The goal of work is love. Earlier in our service, we heard Jesus' words. That the, the sum total of everything God has revealed is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, and everything has to be defined in relation to that. Work has to be defined in relation to that. So our work, it must be oriented to the love of God. Each of us must learn how to do our particular jobs in all of their boring ordinariness as an act of devotion to God. And some of you figured it out, and some of you haven't. Some of you need to come alongside myself or other people who've been doing a lot of work with work for a long time. You need to come alongside Christians in your own profession and you need to discover how to do your actual work as an act of devotion to God. Homemakers, teachers, artists, mental health care workers, businessmen, if you haven't figured this out, then you are susceptible to the idolatrous power of work to distort your life. We have to do this. We, each of us has to learn how to do our particular job as a particular act of devotion to God. But there's more. That's not all there is because there's also 
love of neighbor, right? The greatest commandment is to love God. So we got to figure out how to work in a way that loves God. But you also have to figure out what your work has to do with loving your neighbor. We have to learn how to perform our particular jobs as primarily an act of devotion to God and an act of service to our neighbor. We're supposed to work for our neighbors, for our brothers and sisters and our enemies. And our vocations are supposed to be directed in love toward all people. Businessmen, you've got to figure this one out. You've got to figure out how the creation of wealth and producing jobs is an act of devotion to God and an act of love to neighbors. And and it's there. It is there. This is what leads you to really grapple with the particularity of your actual job. Because the way my job is an act of devotion to God, an act of love to my neighbor, is different than Bob's job as a corporate lawyer. It's different than Kyle's job as a business owner. Each of you have to figure this out in the particularity of your actual work. We're supposed to work For our neighbors, brothers, sisters, enemies, our vocation is fundamental to loving God and loving neighbors, to loving our cities, to loving our enemies, college students, high school students, junior high students. Think about how this opens up your task of figuring out what you're going to do. Please, please. Consider your own gifts and abilities and interests and talents, but also consider the deep needs of the world. And aim for that sweet spot where your interest, abilities, and passions and experiences overlaps with the deep needs of the world and the priority of God. And that sweet spot, aim for that. Find that place and go for it. Just think about how this opens up the whole domain of work. Just two examples. In our community, like in so many communities, there is a massive need for many, many more mental health care workers. A massive need. I think the going rate for a social worker right now is like $16 an hour. You have to muscle past the gag reflex and go there. Because that's what Christians do. You see, fundamentally, Christians have learned that our basic relation to needs is we disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that a part fundamentally of Jesus on the cross? We need people to go there. Some of you, please don't become a mental health care worker. You will ruin people's lives. You weren't made for it. You will contribute to the problem. Don't do that. But some of you need to go there. And just think about our current political situation. Think about the massive need we have for really well-educated, really smart, really creative policymakers. How in the world are we going to calibrate the need for security and the need for compassion? This is a massively complex issue that we're going through right now. It is... It is It is the work of specialists, people who can really deal with international policy in ways that take security seriously and 
commit themselves to the virtue of compassion. We need Christians to get very good educations, to get very, very smart, and to go to work in government. So throughout the Bible, we see that as we follow God into the asylums of our cities, it happens in three ways. As neighbors, as workers, and thirdly, as citizens. We have to refuse to ignore the great social issues of our day. The church that sticks its head in the sand with regard to the great social issues of the day is a coward that gives up its birthright. May it not be the case with us. As we follow the Lamb into the asylums of our community, we must never underestimate the nature of cities and states and nations. They are not merely collections of individuals. A city is a collection of a dense, overlapping network of businesses and organizations and associations. And these institutions have a surprisingly disproportionate impact on the lives of the citizenships than any single citizen can. Christians in America have to get much more mature about how we think of cities. They are not the aggregates of individuals. We have to get much more sophisticated in what it means to engage a city. It's a thing. And we do this as neighbors, and we do this through our jobs, but we also have to learn how to do this as citizens. We've got to pay attention to the fact that the first time Jesus dealt with the poor in John was at the institutional level. He engaged the institution that was crushing the poor, which was the institutionalized greed in a particular aspect of the temple complex. Living in this city of ours is a gift. We live in a great city. This is a wonderful place to live. It brings so many gifts into our lives in so many ways. This community is such a gift to us, but we must resist the consumer mindset of living here for what this place can give us. Ultimately, as Christians, we live in this place to serve this place. We must work for the peace and justice and prosperity of this community as neighbors, as workers, and as citizens. We've got to translate all of this into our politics, into our communal engagement. And so as we are following the Lamb into the broken places of our city, we need to do this through lives and households of hospitality and work that has been reoriented to the end for which it was made and through citizenship that takes the complex nature of a city seriously and, and, and do this, remembering this man in John chapter 5, crushed by despair, desperately seeking relationships, no friends, no family. And there are hundreds of people, thousands of people like this in our community. There are men and women and children in this community who are wandering in the search of their own life. They live in our city. And every day, they wake up. 
And they wrap themselves in whatever they have and they make their way through the pain of the manifold lonelinesses of this city. We see in John chapter 5 that God loves them. That he finds them. He extends his love to them. He delights in their dignity. (coughs) He weeps in their pain. He joins them in longing for shelter. And because God loves them, he put you in this city. That's why God put you here. He put you in this city, not just so that you can receive the benefits of this great place we live in, but so that you can extend the hospitable love of God in concrete and practical ways as a neighbor, a worker, and a citizen to the weak and vulnerable of this community. And it's not just you. There are many, many Christians all through Harrisonburg. There are many good, gospel, Jesus-adoring churches all through this city. And he has put these churches in this city to be the faithful presence of love to the broken people of this community. (coughs) And as we give ourselves to loving God and loving our neighbors and our enemies through our households, our vocations, and our citizenship. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the end of Paul's longest meditation on the resurrection. He gets to the very end of thinking as deep as he ever thinks about the resurrection. And the last thing he says is, you know what the resurrection means? It means your labor is not in vain. So as we move out into this astonishing problem, as we come here week after week, Sunday after Sunday, adore the Lamb, have our wounds bound up, our hurts salved, as we come here and we experience the love of community and we draw on the nourishing love of Christ and then we go out of this place, moving into this world as a church, We move into this world as neighbors and workers and citizens as we do this. As we give ourselves to loving God and our neighbors, it looks impossible. But because of the resurrection, it is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, when you get your teeth kicked in, it is not in vain. As we do these things. The kingdom moves forward. And our enemies, they will find light and rest and embrace and the very presence of love. Let's pray.